Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, we have something slightly different for the listeners today. That's right, we do. That's right, we're bringing you our exclusive Agents in the Field series. Now, usually this is exclusive to our Patreon subscribers uh but basically what we decided to do is give you the first episode to get an idea of what we're doing on the show yeah we've got some really cool things going on over there the rock is a movie i know people will be excited to hear us talk about and so we want to give you this little bit of a taster sort of an hors d'oeuvre if you will as to what's going on on the patreon so if you jump over there we're gonna have you know two of these episodes a month tackling all sorts of fun movies like the sting and jaws the revenge um hitchcock's to catch a thief and who knows what else in the future but i think this is a pretty good teaser if ever there was one definitely starting the show with a high now of course to explain the show a little bit agents in the field is we pick one of the your favorite spy actors or directors and chart their non-spy work so this is of course a sean connery nicholas cage film sean connery who you may or may not know was a guy called james bond Mm, yeah, it seems to have been. Um, I have to do a little more research on that one. Something about a panther. I'm not too sure. But uh, yeah, so he did this film in the 90s. It was quite successful. And let's be honest, it, it freaking rocks. <laughs> was that a pun? Was that intentional? Yeah, that was not intentional. There we go. Boom. Oh, I'm firing on all cylinders by Zeus's butthole. <laughs> Um, but also what I wanted to talk about is what we're doing the Patreon for before we start the episode up proper. Now, um, we're not trying to take over the world here. The Patreon is basically to help us get better equipment for the show so we can provide you with better audio and better editing facilities. And that's it, really. You know, we're not asking for much. The Patreon tiers are quite cheap. And, of course, the other thing we're offering as well, which you we didn't mention, Cam, is we'll be doing a film commentary every single month. That's right. We're starting with Goldeneye, but we're going to have the Ipcris file coming up. And, again, who knows what the future could hold? One day, we could be doing a Condor Man commentary, for all we know. Well, that's the perfect thing about becoming a patron is you can get in touch with us and tell us what you want. It's going to be a small set of listeners. And if, you know, all six of you want to hear Condor Man, then Condor Man we do. But this week we're talking about The Rock. Yes, definitely. And I'm excited to dive back into this conversation. We had a lot of fun recording it. And I hadn't seen this movie in quite a while. So it was a ton of fun to talk about it for the first time. Definitely this decade. So we hope you enjoyed this episode on The Rock. If you want to find out more about our Patreon, you can find us on patreon.com slash spyhards, S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, and there'll also be a link in the show notes below. But without further ado, Cam, welcome everyone to The Rock. Hello and welcome to the very first, the inaugural Agents in the Field patreon exclusive episode and we want to you know off the bat uh say thank you for joining us on this uh side mission to uh to explore the catalog of films from our favorite spy actors directors and their non-spy missions yeah consider us licensed to be thrilled guys we're really excited to be here to talk about 
a lot of the movies we reference just in the average podcast when we're talking about, you know, Harry Palmer, we're dropping references to Michael Caine movies like Batman Begins. And this, I think, podcast venture will allow us to dig into some of those movies we all know really well. And maybe a few that are just obscurities that we think would be really cool for people to check out that we can't bring up on Spy Hearts because they aren't spy movies or Hitman movies in brackets. <laughs> or, or, or assassination films or, uh, or Aliens. Yeah, Men in Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose what we should do at this point is explain the premise of the show. Uh, the idea, as I say, is to explore the back catalogue. And every week we will pick a film each. So this week is my pick. And we are going to go with The Rock. But Scott, why? Why The it, Rock? It's it's a very good question, Cam. <laughs> Well, let me tell you, it's because it stars one Sean Connery, who you may know as James Bond. I thought it was going to be because um, David Morse is in this movie and he showed up in The Long Kiss Goodnight. (laughs) That's exactly my angle, actually. Yeah, I was just paying attention to him. My notes are exclusively on his performance. Your notes are like, oh my God, Connery, bonus. (laughs) Uh, Oh, he's in this film? Question mark? (laughs) Um, Go on, Cam. What was your earliest memories of The Rock? I was a late uh, climber of The Rock, or a pr- <laughs> sure. prisoner, prisoner of The Rock. I was a late prisoner of The Rock, let's say. Yeah, I, I did. It was one of those films in the nineties that just escaped me. I didn't see it. I was in my twenties, I think, so some time ago now when I saw it for the first time, and it's, it's been one of those ones I will go back to when I want to watch a Michael Bay film and I don't want to claw my eyes out. Yeah, there was a lot of excitement for me with this one. I remember it came out, yeah, in 96 in the summer. And I'd seen the original Bad Boys, and I was a fan of it, but I wasn't, like, in love with it. But the trailers for The Rock and the commercials were just so exciting. I remember friends in high school talking about it. And I ended up going, actually, with my mom. My mom really wanted to see The Rock. And, yeah. Except except you you took her to a WWF show, and she was very confused. It was a mother-son night out. We all went to the, the two of us went to the Rock, and we both had a great time. He's <laughs> <laughs> just like high fiving each other on the way out, slow mo style. Yeah, she didn't take me to Con Air though. That was my dad. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I could see that this being maybe a bit more approachable than Con Air. What is it mm-hmm. actually? I don't know if it is really for mums. I well, actually, I want to know. Cam, hang on, I want to know why did your mum want to see this film. I really can't answer that. Um, I'm wondering, I think my maybe my dad and sister were away. Maybe it was my sister's soccer team or something had something going on. And so it was just the two of us. And it must have been playing. And I don't know if it was the appeal of just Sean Connery or what. Because I can't say like my mom, you know, and I sat down and watched a lot of action movies together. But I, I do remember a couple years later, we went and saw The Negotiator together. The Samuel Jackson, uh, Kevin Spacey uh, vehicle. And so maybe it was a little bit of the star power attached and maybe just a little bit of, I know Cam wants to see this. You know, this is a good bonding moment. Bonding. Mm, taking it all back. Wow. It's interesting because I can imagine a very awkward moment between you and your mum when Sean Connery is talking about gang rapes in the showers. Well, there's also the sex scene on the, uh, you know, balcony or whatever with Nick Cage and his girlfriend, too. Is that a sex scene, Cam? I, I really don't know. She's just really not putting any effort in. <laughs> yeah, and she's wearing all of her lingerie, too. Um... <laughs> I have questions. I have many questions. But um, 
I suppose before we dig into uh, uh, a slice of the rock, I don't know if you can call it that, but uh, a piece of the rock. There we go. A chunk of the rock. A chunk. Let's take a chunk. But uh, (laughs) here is the letterbox.com synopsis. I know you guys love to hear me read these things out. And unfortunately, this one is exceedingly long. The Rock. Alcatraz. Only one man has ever broken out. Now five million lives depend on two men breaking in. FBI chemical warfare expert Stanley Goodspeed is sent on an urgent mission with a former British spy. John Patrick (laughs) Mason to stop General Francis X. Hummel from launching chemical weapons on Alcatraz Island into San Francisco. General Hummel demands $10 million in war reparations to be paid to the families of slain servicemen who died on covert operations. After their SEAL team is wiped out, Stanley and John deal with the soldiers on their own. I don't know that you need the detail of $10 million. Like, (laughs) that feels very specific. You could just say holding hostages for ransom. Um, Mm. But... um, I, I, you know, as you're reading that, it really made me reflect that it's very difficult to sum up Ed Harris's, like, goals in, like, a sentence of a synopsis. It's actually a fairly complex, well-layered villain that we can probably tie into our discussion of the movie. But, yeah, not the easiest to sum up motivations right there on a letterbox synopsis. I, I think it's quite easy. He wants justice for his soldiers. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, that's I think it's why it works because you boil it down and that, and that's what you get is the okay we'll get into that hang on I, I'll pull back for a second but I suppose we've both revisited it for this episode Cam what do you think in 2021 I really enjoyed revisiting this movie it was always a case where I haven't seen The Rock in quite a while actually surprisingly long it was a movie I watched over and over and over again in the 90s and it's probably been whew, it could be as long as 10 years since I've seen it. So, like, I was definitely um, looking forward to it, but also nervous. Like, is it going to be one that when I rewatch it, I go, oh, a lot of lulls in this movie. A lot of, um, you know, action that doesn't hold up. But, you know, Michael Bay is a director I've gone on a journey with. <laughs> a long journey. An often torturous journey. <laughs> I think you know what I'm talking about. And that, yeah, after The Rock, you know, Armageddon. I didn't like Armageddon. What? And I don't like Armageddon at all. Cam, how could you not like Armageddon? I don't want to miss a thing when it comes to that film. It's actually one of my favorite, like, stupid 90s films. I just... I think with Michael Bay, I fell in love with the style of The Rock. And it was like he just... When he, you know, rolled into Armageddon, he was like, let's do that times 100. And I just found it really exhausting to sit through. And I... I can't stand any of the Transformers movies that he directed. Um, I thought The Island was okay. But by and large, Michael Bay's a guy who I'm constantly holding out hope I'm going to like his next movie. Last night, I went and saw Last Night in Soho, and I saw the trailer for Ambulance. And I'm like, please, God, please deliver. I want to see a good Michael Bay movie, but I really don't like a lot of his stuff. In fact, the majority. But The Rock is the one that's always been special. It's the one where everything connected and really delivers and this movie it's an embarrassment of amazing character actors uh you have like philip baker hall showing up to deliver like one line of exposition you just have this thing riddled with great presences 
And just the pairing of Connery and Cage is genius. Their energy levels are so different, but yet so much fun to watch play off each other. So I was really happy with my experience revisiting The Rock yesterday. It really does hold up. I mean, I sort of alluded to it earlier, but it is one of those films I will go back to when I want a little pick-me-up. It, it, okay, it's not, it's not going to win an Oscar for its script or anything like that, but hey, it's a propulsive action film that doesn't take its foot off the gas and isn't, isn't shite. Yeah. By the way, I can swear on this one, so <laughs> it isn't shit. And I, you know, it's, got, it's got James Bond in it, which I'll always love. I'm not a Nicolas Cage guy, I have to say. You see, I am. So this makes more sense. <laughs> it's true, yeah. I am a big Nicolas Cage fan. In fact, I have a separate um, DVD shelf to the right of me, you know, of where I'm recording, that is just all Nicolas Cage movies. <laughs> is it all him screaming his way through it? Because it's what he does in this film. Uh, yeah, this is definitely, like, his quirky period. Like, if you... Are, well, he's always had a quirky period, but, like, <laughs> this is coming off a lot of his really crazy high-wire performances and him plugging that into an action movie formula, which maybe we can talk about in a bit, but just sort of sum up your uh, you know, your thoughts revisiting. Yeah, coming back to it now, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's aged a bit. It hasn't missed a step. It's still great. The action works. The set pieces work. The practical effects, practical effects. I love practical effects, if you didn't hmm. know. And it, this film is basically full of them, and it works, except for the couple of bits that don't. But... As you said, you know, all-star lineup um, from the top down to even the guest cast. You've got people like John C. McGinley, who I love from Scrubs, just, you know, only just screaming lines in the film. But you enjoy it and you buy it. You've got a villain that you can actually understand his motivations and you could root for him in maybe a, a different angle perspective on, on the film. And that just, it's just an enjoyable two and a bit hours. Yeah, it's just such a ride. And at two hours and 20 minutes, it's a movie that very easily could have stalled out, which is so often the case with action movies. I would say a lot of Michael Bay's action movies, you know, even now his movies are usually quite long. I think most of the Transformers movies are two and a half hours circling around there. I think the like fifth one was three hours almost. And he usually can't support that sort of runtime. I find he tends to drag and the movie gets exhausting to watch. And that's something critics of his have always pointed to and said. His movies are exhausting. And I think, like, The Rock is one where it has that runtime, but it just feels really well-paced, and it doesn't wear out its welcome. And I think that's actually a testament just to the chemistry and just how quickly the story carries you along. Because one thing about Michael Bay action I really noticed last night um, is that it's often regarded as exhausting action. And it's because he doesn't really do extended like set pieces when you watch say i don't know mad max fury road or some of the work of spielberg um it's all about these sort of sequences that are built almost like a musical where they build and build and build and build to a big crescendo moment whereas like michael bay it's like set up boom set up boom and he just repeats that over and over again and i think when you got to those transformers movies that was exhausting but here it actually is just a lot of fun to watch I mean, those Transformers films, apart from being an assault on your eyes, they also didn't really have a great cast to back them up. Now, I know you had Shia LaBeouf, who I love to make jokes about. And, you know, you had some of the Transformers voice actors coming back to, to voice some of the Transformers. But apart from that, you know, Megan Fox, I don't think she's winning any acting awards. Maybe she has, maybe I'm wrong, but it's nothing I've seen. But this film is filled with actors that 
have won awards. Sean yeah, Connery I mean, for the Untouchables, you know, John Spencer's won a bunch of awards, especially like uh, stage awards. Um, I don't know about Nicolas Cage particularly. <laughs> Oscar Razzies. Is no, he? he won Best Actor Oscar, yeah, in 19... The year before this came out, he did Leaving Las Vegas in one. I haven't seen that. Maybe that's the one good Nicolas Cage film I've never seen. Oh, I think we're going to have a battle about this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you're so right, though. And I, I will say this, though. One thing with Michael Bay, even in the Transformers movies, you do see some really interesting actors pop up. John Turturro shows up in several of those movies. I think Kevin Dunn as um, you know, Shia LaBeouf's dad is pretty fun. There's some solid talent here or there, um, but maybe not to the degree. Stanley Tucci shows up in a couple of them as well. But like, yeah, not to the degree you have here where... I was just really shocked watching it last night, how many talented actors show up in this movie. And I think to a degree, it's kind of, he just had a good eye for up and coming talent because a lot of these people weren't really names probably in 1996. But when you have people like Raymond Cruz, who's so well known now because of um, Breaking Bad, showing up as, you know, one of Ed Harris's soldiers, or you have Bokeem Woodbine showing up as another soldier they have little bits, but it's not like the movie, I don't think, was acknowledging them as stars of the time. It's just like, get us character actors who really jump out. And that's something that, I, as much as I struggle often with Michael Bay movies, I really can't fault the casting. Because he can usually find a lot of great personalities to kind of try to bring life to their, you know, even small moments. Well, before I move on to maybe picking some bits out that I liked, I wanted to highlight, I just want to make a... A shout out to who I think is the star performance in the film. Okay. Can you can you guess who it is? Oh boy, it's clearly not the guy who plays the hairdresser, because he is the low light. Whoa, um... whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Stylist. Right, right. Um the highlight. Well, okay, so I have to remove like the two leads. And I don't know if you're being ironic either, if you're just like presenting one who's goofy. That's where I'm kind of struggling. Is it is it a goofy one or are you serious? I'm being entirely facetious. Oh, okay. I don't know because I've I've taken the hairdresser off the board, so now I'm <laughs> or the stylist. So I'm now I'm curious. Well, the stylist is hand in hand with Vanessa Marcel, who plays uh, Stanley Goodspeed's fiance slash soon to be wife slash mother of his child. I, I mean, the film doesn't open on them, but there's a good portion devoted to her at the beginning, and I I can't <laughs> stand that bit. I have to say. I am entirely forgiving, though, of women acting in Michael Bay movies because, uh, yeah, you know, history speaks for itself on that one. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Maybe I should just eat that comment. Uh, that's fair enough. Uh, maybe that's a script. But uh, OK, well, let's let's tackle some of the bits we liked and, and characters we want to shout out. I want to talk about the opening. And that okay. is the Ed Harris monologue sort of setting his you know, putting his flag in the film and setting out what he wants to do and, and and taking over the rock he obviously goes and captures the chemical weapons beforehand as well but like he goes to see his wife's grave and you can see this is a tortured soul who firmly believes in what he's doing and you buy in you actually for a second would think he's your protagonist yeah he's a villain that is really interesting and this is that era where a lot of movies are still following that Die Hard formula. I'm sure that this movie was pitched as Die Hard on Alcatraz. It seems extremely likely. And, you know, when you look at um, Alan Rickman's character in Die Hard, there's a lot of complexity there. And I feel like they were taking the best parts of that 
here. You could also say, say the same thing about Dennis Hopper and speed. And um, I think it's actually shocking how much nuance they gave this character where he's not really the villain. He's a he's a guy who's obviously very um, patriotic and you see that when it comes to actually taking American lives in his cause, he won't do it. So that, you know, sets up an interesting mutiny situation on The Rock, which adds tension. But I think a, a dumber movie, and I know I'm saying The Rock isn't dumb when I think it's pretty much sold as being a dumb action movie, but I actually there are some smarts to it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, like, giving him this sort of nuance makes him that much more of a memorable, interesting character. I hesitate to sometimes even call him the villain of the movie. Yeah, I could agree. There's probably people in there that perhaps are more villainous. But he is definitely your antagonist for the film. He drives the plot basically the entire way. He's the reason they're all assembled on the rock. Yeah, and I think actually if this movie were made now, they would probably focus more on him perhaps struggling with PTSD or something like that. Because in the intro where they're setting him up, you have a lot of um, audio uh, voiceover and stuff of him you know, recalling these missions he's been on and the violence he's experienced. And it's something that... In a movie made 2021, I can guarantee that would have been an angle they would have taken. I mean, this film has a lot of ties to, to video games, which is why I'm surprised I didn't watch it at the time, because there's, there's a lot of ties to like the Metal Gear Solid series in here, especially um, the Ed Harris character. And uh, also, there's a Alcatraz Island. Is, uh, this is a sideline for you there, because I don't think you've ever played a video game that's come out in the last 10 years at all. <laughs> 10 years? <laughs> Okay. That's generous. <laughs> You're still playing Pong. That's right. Mrs. Pac-Man has just come around and it's blown up my world, Scott. <laughs> waka, 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 waka. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, Alcatraz Island is modeled in the Call of Duty Warzone game as, as Rebirth Island. So I spend hours of my life running around this island that it's modeled on. So seeing them standing outside of it is, is, is a weird thing because I've been standing in that position for years now shooting at people it's, i know it's a side thing but uh yeah no that's fun though and you know i really do give this movie a lot of credit for embracing how absurd it is mm -hmm. um alcatraz <laughs> the depiction of alcatraz in this movie is crazy where it's like this puzzle society <laughs> that they've built here where there's like tunnels that lead on to like like little cars that take you around on like roller coaster tracks and it's absolutely crazy, but I think the genius of the movie is it never winks at the audience. It just knows it's having fun. Well, yeah, you've got the, the mine cart inside. Like, what was down underneath this prison before it was a prison? And not to mention the furnace that has, like, a sequence. <laughs> is that a furnace? I can't even tell. It's some sort of, like, video game fire trap. <laughs> it, it reminded me a lot of Galaxy Quest, which I know, I think, came out after this. Um, yeah. But that is obviously a reference to you know, Indiana Jones, those sort of adventure films. Uh, I feels, guess that's what it's ripping off anyway. It feels a little bit too like um, some of those Bowser castles in Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> Back to video games again, man. Yeah, well, Michael Bay's coming out in an era where it's all about music video directors. That was the big deal, and a lot of um, directors would get picked up because of his success. And, I mean, it kind of makes sense that these people who are really into you know music videos would also be tied into somewhat video game culture. It's youth culture at the time. So I can totally see him designing a lot of these sequences with sort of the um, sensibility of a gamer who wants to see really awesome, over-the-top things happening. Well, you definitely, there's an audience out there at this point because I was that kid playing those games. Yeah, and I remember playing, or sorry, I remember seeing this movie and 
wanting to play like the rock for like Nintendo 64. Like, you know how we had Goldeneye, which was so phenomenal. Um, I don't, I can't remember if Goldeneye was actually out at this point in time, but just the idea of like a first person shooter in the style of say Turok Dinosaur Hunter, which was out um, of the rock would have been incredible. Turok is a fantastic game. Um, it is. W- what about you, Cam? I-, I called out the Ed Harris intro. What- something you liked. Let's talk about Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. Because to mm. me, the dynamic of these two is so crucial. If you have two actors that aren't bouncing off each other properly or don't have that sense of fun in their performances, this movie could be a slog. Because I think Michael Bay makes these sort of very overwhelming action movies that can feel a little burdensome when you don't have a really fun central character to really carry you through it. Um, You know, I referenced The Island earlier. I like the movie The Island. I think it's probably one of Michael Bay's better movies. But like Scarlett Johansson and Ewan McGregor in that are playing so like kind of naive and sheltered in that that you don't have the sense of fun you have here of the wisecracking of Sean Connery and Nick Cage. And I mean, their performances are crazy, particularly Cage's. Sean Connery, I just think there was so much reverence going on for Sean Connery. They're just like, right up badass, and Sean Connery can pull it off. Would not shock me if Michael Bay was watching um, Untouchables a few times before making this, in addition to James Bond. But like, Nick Cage, I think, is so important. And I think this actually marks a sea change in how we make action movies. And that when you look at the 90s, it's sort of continuing on the trends of the 80s, where Arnold Schwarzenegger is still a big star around 94. We got True Lies. Stallone is still around and having Cage as your lead of this movie suddenly set this bar for you know let's start putting really talented character actors at the center of action movies and you had Travolta doing it I believe the year earlier in Broken Arrow but it feels like we're just gonna head down that road to a point where we're still doing it now Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man because they wanted an actor they wanted a character actor to bring that person to life um I think Nick Cage is responsible for the MCU is what I'm saying basically. Which is which is strange because at the end of this film he obviously drives off to start the National Treasure films. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Nick Cage is a real thing with the JFK assassination. <laughs> yeah, that's a I I, I never know that connection until I watched it yesterday really, but it does feel like a weird segue into what he did in his later career. <laughs> yeah. And Nick Cage was an actor who was known for being experimental and crazy. You look at movies like Vampire's Kiss or Wild at Heart. It's like if you want an electric, go-for-broke performance that's going to deliver you things that you will not see another actor pull off, you hire Nick Cage. That's the whole point of what Nick Cage is. So plug him into a role that could have just been like a mousy, boring scientist and giving him a lot of weird dialogue. We referenced the sex scene earlier. I'm pretty sure Nick Cage is improving all of his dialogue through that scene. There's a lot of moments like that where it just feels like a character actor who is just looking at the script and being like, how do I inject energy with everything I do? Well, I mean, speaking of lines, it's interesting because I wrote, I wrote one of my favorite of the uh, cagisms down in this film. And I imagine it probably just was a spur of the moment thing because he at one point yells, how in the Zeus's butthole? And you just like, what kind of mind does that line come from? Because I don't think the writer of this film had that on the page. I mean, the thing with Nick Cage is he always talks about how he does deep dive research. I remember when he was doing Ghost Rider 2, I believe. There was stories about how on the set he dressed as Baron Samity all the time because he was trying to get in the mind of a voodoo demon or something like that. I don't know. He's a very, he's a deeply strange man. 
But I think like with this, you know, character, he's probably like, he's probably like imagining, okay, so I'm like a scientist, I'm cooped up. I have my obsessions. I'm probably filtering through the back of my head while I'm working. And so like, let's bring these to the forefront where he's kind of awkward, but he's also a little aggro, which fits the Michael Bay mold very well, where you have that sort of aggro edge. But, like, I I just have, like, feelings like the whole Beatles obsession, things mm. like that, must have been coming from Nick Cage. I'd be very curious to see the screenplay, which, uh, you know, had three writers on it. So I think it was a bit of a committee job there. But, like, I just wonder how much of the kind of the oddities as the, the line you referenced earlier, Zeus's butthole, how much of these are coming from Cage's ideas? Because I don't think at in 96, you know, coming off of his Oscar, I mean, I don't think he'd won the Oscar at that point, but... He'd done leaving Las Vegas. I don't think you're bringing him in and being like, here, read the lines. I, you're actually scaring me now, Cam, because I think I have a lot more in common with Nicolas Cage than I'd like to admit because I do own some Beatles records. So, uh, But yeah, I, I did not sleep with the valedictorian or, or whatever he says. I, I, was, it, was it the head of the cheerleading squad or something? What was he? Uh, well, no, it's prom queen because that's the big line from Sean Connery, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I kind of want to pivot off of lines from Nicolas Cage, and I want to talk about lines from Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I will preface, I love Sean in this film. It's one of my favorite non-Bond performances with probably The Untouchables, and of course, Zardoz, uh, <laughs> who can forget. But, you know, I, I never thought I would hear him utter words like, why am I not surprised, you piece of shit? <laughs> <laughs> just say yes this is i want this angry old man bond or sean connery in my life uh i think we were robbed of that in skyfall is there another actor who could have pulled off welcome to the rock better than sean connery mm. it's maybe tough the rock? yeah i uh, you know what well maybe on a yeah wwe broadcast or something but like if you're gonna have an actor who's gonna like give that the gravitas as well like sean connery makes it both funny and badass at the same time like you i remember people laughing in the theater when he said it but it's also like you know you're in for like a wild ride well this is it the film knows exactly what it is and it's a it's a you know white knuckle it's a head-on action flick it's just going to go in at 100 miles per hour and it knows it's silly and that's what i really appreciate as well is it's not apologizing for itself. It no, uh, and I—that's probably something I don't like about Michael Bay films—is the excess. But this film seems to revel in its excess, excess. But somehow it's not too much. Like he hasn't gone overboard at this point. No, he hasn't gotten to the point where you hear stories about him on his film sets now, where he drives around in a golf cart that's on monster truck wheels, screaming through a bullhorn. <laughs> Welcome to the rock. Welcome to the rock. <laughs> like it seems like he likes to run his film sets like a military operation. Like there's a lot of military fetishism in the rock. It all starts here, I think, with like a lot of slow-mo soldiers running, you know, things like that. The American flag waving, um fighter jets like soaring through the air in slow motion. There's a lot of slow motion. Um yeah, so like that all starts here, but like Michael Bay I think really takes that to heart as he goes forward in his filmmaking. Whereas here, it's almost like he's discovering it for the first time, and that's much more exciting. And it's, as I said, like, it's absurd. This whole movie is absurd. Everything that happens in it, you know, when they head over with, like, the SEAL team and they're all wiped out, 
just the fact that it's going to be Sean Connery, who's in his you know 60s at this point, and this like nerdy scientist are going to take down a highly trained uh, team of Marines, like unlikely. But the movie leans right into it and plays it more as comic booky and colorful versus like dumb and you know just silly. It's interesting because I was watching at least some of this film with my better half Hannah, and she pipes up at one point and says. Why is Nicolas Cage playing with uh, bright green anal beads? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's also absurd. The design of those rockets makes no sense. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a strange one, but uh, I, I'm willing to forgive it because the film is, is already insane from the point, well, I think from the point the guy melts in that, that pressure chamber right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that's a great sequence too because it sets up the needle to the heart, which I can't help but feel was inspired by Pulp Fiction from like a year or two years earlier. Um, but again, it, it's a really smart setup and payoff. Like they have that moment where the gas in that room is flying everywhere and their suits are melting and they're saying they're going to have to inject themselves. And you get comedy beats out of that of Nick Cage's coworker melting down. And um, it's a great payoff when you get it at the end. You see that Nick Cage can actually do it in that circumstance. And also, just, uh, you know, that intro section where they steal the weapons and you see the soldier locked behind the door getting gassed and dying horribly. And then you follow that with Nick Cage explaining what happens with VX gas, just the horrors of what it can do to you, makes the um, comeuppance of, like, that villain uh, Captain Fry at the end of the movie that much more wonderful because you know exactly what it's going to do. And you're almost cheering that his face is melting off. Yeah. And I mean, this movie is just chock-a-block with like memorable villain characters. And you have that team, um, Gregory uh, leader playing Captain Fry and Tony Todd playing Captain Darrow, who are like the mercenaries that join the team. Mm -hmm. And they kind of hide out in the background a lot of the movie. But on revisits, you really recognize that a lot of the violence and a lot of the um, ill events that happen throughout the story are actually their fault or at least they're doing. I don't know if they see themselves at fault. They're actually pro-doing what they want to do. And the mutiny is everything, and all that is tied to them. And I think they make really strong secondary antagonists that kind of take over the movie at a certain point. And it doesn't feel like kind of the nameless henchmen, you know, in the final act. It feels like really formidable villains that we've gotten to spend a decent amount of time with, even in a very busy movie filled with characters. But the film also is quite happy to kill people. We haven't mentioned at all Michael Bain. Yeah. Steps into the film. We all know who he is by this point. He's already a household name. And he, you think, oh, okay, he's going to lead this insurgency into the, the rock. And then he's dead within 20 minutes of meeting him in the film. Yeah, which is a great, you know, pull out the carpet, uh, you know, under the audience kind of moment. Because, you know, he obviously he's the star of the original Terminator He's shown up in a couple James Cameron movies like Hicks in Aliens. So when you see him, you have a certain amount of confidence like this is going to be the badass that is going to help, you know, our heroes out. And so when he dies unceremoniously in the showers there, it really is effective in ramping up the tension because you go, well, if they got Michael Bean, like, what hope do these two have? It's sort of a little bit. Um, I think it's less successfully used in the past when they did like that movie. Um that I'm totally blanking the name on, but it's the one where Kurt Russell has to go to a hijacked plane and he goes with Steven Seagal as the head of special operations and Seagal is killed, you know, entering the plane and it's up to Kurt Russell to save the day. You know, moments like, oh, executive decision, that's what it was called. Yeah, it's like 
that sort of concept is really effective, but I think The Rock does it better than most. Well, you know, after Bane dies, you're like, well, who's going who's gonna to be the badass? And then you realize you've got James Bond. Yeah. And how amazing is Connery? Like we said, you know, obviously his quotes are great, but just as a physical performer, he's still got it. And, you know, I'm sure there were stunt doubles used, but they do a really good job masking them throughout the movie. And he just has like a physicality about him that is so effective. They're playing well with kind of his height and his build, dressing him all in black. He looks so awesome. And I would like, you know, this is a spy movie podcast. I would have liked a little more of kind of that taken using his spy craft moments, but I don't care. Just watching him hurl knives at people is incredible. He's like the old man John Wick that we all wanted. He really is. Um, yeah, he's he's fantastic. He, you know, he's still got that broad Caledonian chest. You know, he he still looks the part at, at sixty. The beard, I think, even makes it better. He looks like a gruff old sailor that's going to snap your neck. <laughs> and I remember Michael Bay when Sean Connery passed away. To, um, you know, released an interview or gave an interview where he um said that he had some real struggles on The Rock just in terms of studio pressure. This is a very expensive movie, and he just done Bad Boys. And he said Sean Connery was instrumental in helping kind of pave the way for him to make the movie he wanted to make and really had his back. And so you can get the sense as well, like this wasn't a necessarily paycheck job for Connery. I mean, that may have been why he did it in the first place, but I think it was one that he really did believe in what they could achieve through this movie, even as silly as it is, and was, you know, backing Michael Bay to help achieve it throughout. Well, I mean, this was part of the Sean Connery resurgence in the 80s and 90s, more or less started off by uh, The Last Crusade, right? Um, I think the Oscar win for Untouchables in 87 probably kicks it off. Uh, I've got my timeline. I thought that one came first. Untouchables is definitely a better performance than Indiana Jones. And then, he, you know, he has some uh, some good films in the 90s and then some near misses like uh, The Avengers and, of course, The uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I will say this, though, you cited Last Crusade, and I actually think that movie is in some ways even more important because um, for, like, Untouchables, as a kid, that movie meant really nothing to me till I saw it a little bit later down the road. Mm -hmm. But Last Crusade was one of those generational movies that, you know, it was a summer of 89 movie, and summer of 89 was the summer where you had Batman and Star Trek V and Ghostbusters 2, License to Kill... A ton of huge movies, Back to the Future 2, and Last Crusade was one of the big hits, and a movie that for a lot of kids my age, we watched over and over again on VHS, and that's how a lot of us became really, really familiar with Sean Connery. So I think you have that kind of the youth appeal of Sean Connery going into movies like The Rock because of Last Crusade. And we're also not living in a time in 1996 where you have these old actors coming back to you know, reprise roles or take up similar roles. You know, now you've got Michael Keaton playing Batman again mm -hmm. in, in some strange parallel universe. Apparently that's happening. But they, wouldn't really, they wasn't really doing that in the 90s. They wanted newer stars. So having Sean Connery come back and play an action role, because, you, know, you know, Last Crusade, Untouchables isn't that much of an action role, really. It's not that particularly straining. Whereas this, he's got a, you know, crawling around the floor, fighting people, shooting guns. It's, it's basically back to his Bond days. Yeah, and you have the scene of him in the Humvee driving around in this very absurd chase through San Francisco. And I had to reflect that, like, one of the genius things about Sean Connery action sequences in the Bond movies was he always had this sort of steely determination, but you could kind of tell the actor was having fun. 
And when you see some of the Connery performances that maybe don't measure up or the ones he wasn't necessarily having the greatest time, you know, on the job, you kind of lose that and he looks bored. But I was just watching this one moment in the Humvee chase where you could just tell it was Sean Connery on a set and Michael Bay shaking the camera. Like it was very clearly just him shaking the camera in a steel vehicle. But you could just see that Connery is just really engaged with what he's doing and obsessed with like making the kind of the absurdity of this all sell. Well, I think we we've noted during our discourse on Sean Connery Bond films that when he's engaged, he's a he's much better. Yeah, and I think when you get to like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, we're kind of in Diamonds Are Forever territory where he wasn't happy with the production. He was very vocally not happy with it. And it comes across on screen. Whereas The Rock, a movie that could have been overwhelming, like you can just imagine all the moving parts on a set like this. He could have gotten bored just as an actor, but it's very clear he was engaged. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, it's quite clear that me and you both love this film. Yeah. I don't think that's up for debate. And how I want to sort of finish off these uh, Agents in the Field episodes is I have a, a question. And that question is, what if our spy actor or director, but usually actor, that's how it would work, was playing their character? So in mm. this case, Sean Connery is playing James Bond in The Rock. Now, I will say that there are fan theories out there that he is James Bond in this film. It's a code name. Patrick Mason, uh, John Patrick Mason is a code name. And, you know, he mentions things like he was a spy. You know, back in my day, we used to use snorkels and flippers. Wink, wink yeah. to Thunderball, you know. And, of course, just... gang rapes in the showers. <laughs> yeah, that's a line you wouldn't put in a movie nowadays, I don't think. <laughs> I think, like, Michael Bay's movies are pretty notorious for having problematic elements. I think The Rock skates by with fairly few. There's the hairdresser slash stylist. There's that line um maybe a couple of the hostage moments are a little a little caricaturish but um overall it's probably one of the cleaner michael bay movies um as for like the bond theory i think the problem is they mentioned that mason was captured in 1962 which is when dr no kicks off so that's where at least the very literal part of my brain breaks down I mean, we could move those dates around, though, surely. Like it's, can it's, we? <laughs> I think we can. I mean, if if we're saying that Never Say Never Again is canon, then, hey, it, maybe in that canon this also exists. I don't know. I am, I am not saying Never Say Never Again <laughs> is canon. <laughs> Weirdly, but, though, I am saying Casino Royale 67 is canon. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you can stick to that story. I, I won't be agreeing with you. But yeah, okay, so how, how does it change the film? If he is officially James Bond. Weirdly, I don't think it would change very much because he is pretty Bondian. He is very Bondian. I mean, you can tell they were modeling it off a lot of James Bond elements. Um, I think, huh, there's a, um, there's a sweatiness to Mason that is carried through this movie. Like Sean Connery is an actor who's playing these scenes like they take effort. Like this is a guy who's, he seems a little bit beat up by the end. You know, he seems like someone who's struggling in moments. And I think if it's Bond, that's not the case. I mean, Sean Connery was not playing Bond in the Daniel Craig era. So I think they would probably have him making it look a lot easier than what Mason goes through. Where, you know, he's hung upside down and struggling from that, like, uh, you know, trolley car and what have you. He was playing possum, Cam. It was all a mind game. 
<laughs> I, I, I will also say, I think the daughter subplot that's kind of written off towards the end of the film. Uh, I mean, he, you know, what Nicolas Cage lets him run off to be with his family in the end. So it is kind of there, but you don't see the daughter again. I don't think he would have a daughter if he was James Bond. No, well, James Bond might have a lot of children, actually. <laughs> well, okay, none that he is aware of and would chase down on the streets of San Francisco. And you, you, my friend, have been driven around the streets of San Francisco by a crazy driver. So yeah. you must know exactly how that feels. <laughs> uh, and I've ridden on the trolley car as well, going up the streets of San Francisco. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this was all nostalgic for me revisiting this. Um, I actually want to just credit to a supporting actor who I think kind of feeds into the Connery you know, finale moment or what becomes of that character. I love, love, love William Forsythe in this movie as, um, you know, Ernest Paxton. And he's a character who, William uh, Forsythe is a very hard-edged looking actor. Very hard-edged. Mm. I've seen him play a lot of crazies and a lot of scary dudes like on Boardwalk Empire and some of the Rob Zombie movies. But I love how supportive he is of Nick Cage throughout this movie he gives him you know he's tough when he has to be but he's very supportive of making sure Goodspeed feels comfortable going into this and then also at the end when he reports that you know Mason was vaporized and sent out to sea I love how Forsyth plays that scene where he knows exactly what's happened he knows that you know Goodspeed has let Mason get by but he doesn't play it big it's very subtle and it's just a wonderful moment literally one of my favorite moments in the movie he he is the uh, Lee J Cobb of this film. He is the Cramden to the uh, the Flint that is Nicolas Cage. He is, and it's just one of those supporting performances that when people talk about The Rock, they talk about Connery, they talk about Cage, they talk about Ed Harris. They don't tend to recognize how important performances like Forsyth or also John Spencer as well are to what makes this movie really click. I, I will probably just take this opportunity as we wrap up to just shout out John Spencer as well, because I am a massive fan, as you know, of the TV series The West Wing. Mm -hmm. And if he is, of course, uh, Leo McGarry in that show, and he, he died during the production of the show in, in its later seasons um, from, from complications of heart disease, I believe, or, or heart attack, one of the two. But, you know, and a great loss to acting. But it was it's always nice to see him in other roles because I've spent many years rewatching The West Wing and seeing him as in that role. So seeing him in more of a sort of an antagonistic role in this film, he's kind of an asshole. Oh yeah. But he can play that really well. I mean, he comes from a theater background, so he's very good at that sort of stuff. Yeah. He's the perfect boo hiss, you know, government guy that the uh, heroes can kind of turn up their nose at and Connery can get one over on. So he's perfect in that role. Perfect. He's the only, he's the only one that they hit. The, he's the only one that Sean Connery could throw over the side and the crowd's like, yeah, yeah, drop him off. <laughs> Sod him. Yeah. Let him fall. And also, and also just huge credit to Tony Todd and Gregory Sporleader for playing those two mercenaries. Because they're so awful. And you just can't wait to see them get their comeuppance. And obviously Tony Todd has had a very long career. You know, obviously Candyman is very iconic. But he's continuing to work. He's on Star Trek. He's in all sorts of stuff. Gregory Sporleader, I've seen in barely anything. He's done couple roles in like Twister and I think he showed up in SWAT but like based on his work here I'm shocked he didn't become one of those character actors we saw everywhere yeah I think uh, Tony Todd's a bit of a a bit of a miss when it comes to Hollywood he's he I've seen him in tons of Star Trek you know I have and I think he's fantastic and I've seen him do other stuff too but I feel like he's a guy you should have seen more of 
I mean, he gets more though, but like Gregory Spore Leader is the one where I'm just like, why was this guy not just everywhere? I don't know. His face kind of reminds me of yours. <laughs> oh, well, I understand though. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Both great casting though. Both great casting and they really deliver. Absolutely. Now, I, we're not having the knock list on the show, but I, I guess, Cam, would you recommend people check it out if they haven't already? Yeah, big time. I think if you're going to look at 90s action movies, there's a short list of the must-sees. And I think, you know, you've got Terminator 2, you've got Speed, you probably have True Lies, and I would be putting The Rock on there as well. I would I would echo that sentiment completely. Now, uh, first of all, I just want to thank you all once again for tuning in and joining us on Patreon. Now, we may release this one as a bonus episode to uh, to non-patrons, but don't worry. There will be a lot of exclusive stuff for you down the road that is strictly for your ears only. But Cam, what are we doing next time on Agents in the Field? We are heading over to 1973's The Sting, starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman. I'm really looking forward to diving into this one. It's been a while since I've seen it. I uh, haven't seen it. I have no idea about this film, but because of the cast, I'm rather excited to check it out. So uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out The Sting and join us next time. I'll dispense with the normal outro stuff. You know where to find us. But uh, until next time, listeners, this is Hardy from Alcatraz, out.